0: Bitcoin and Co., the podcast about crypto economy and the future of money, hosted by author and speaker Anita Posch. Hello and welcome to this episode of my Bitcoin and Co. podcast. I'm glad that you're listening and if you like my show, then please support it. I'm an independent creator of educational content like this podcast and therefore sponsorships and your support are very important for me. What you can do is you can share the show on social media, tip me in Bitcoin or become a patron. With as little as $5 per month, you'll get early access to new episodes and a big thank you. Go to patreon.com forward slash Posh. that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash a-n-i-t-a-p-o-s-c-h. Thank you. And now, let's start with this episode. Hello to this very special episode of the Bitcoin & Co. podcast. Why is it so special? It's because of our guest. It's Seyfidin Amos. He's the author of The Bitcoin Standard, a book about the history of money, Austrian economics, and the reasons why Bitcoin is superior to other forms of money tried in the past. Sefidin, makes a compelling argument for why Bitcoin is so special. It's not a technical book from a developer's point of view. It's more a book that explains Bitcoin in combination with its economical and technical foundations. As one of his Amazon customers writes in his review, If you ever considered getting into Bitcoin, if you never have heard of Bitcoin, if you are a longtime holder of Bitcoin, this book is for you. Sefidin Amos is working as an assistant professor of economics at the Adnan Kassar School of Business in Beirut and holds a PhD in sustainable development from Columbia University in New York, USA. In May 2018, he was starting his book tour here in Vienna, Austria. I also attended this legendary meetup organized by Bitcoin Austria, And there is a video of his talk on YouTube. You will find the link to the video in the show notes to this podcast. In his talk, he is telling us about the origins of his interest in Bitcoin, what Austrian economics are and how they are connected with Bitcoin, what sound money and inflation are, why proof of work is so important for Bitcoin and his vision for money and Bitcoin in the future. Now, let's get right into the 45 minutes of talk with Sefirin Amos about Bitcoin. So, hello. Thank you very much for taking the time to have a chat with me and the listeners of my Bitcoin and Co. podcast. You are the author of The Bitcoin Standard, a book that is highly appreciated in the community of Bitcoiners. You are also an assistant professor of economics at the Adnan Kassar School of Business in Beirut, if that's right, and yeah. and you hold a PhD in Sustainable Development from Columbia University in New York. So it seems that you are traveling a lot and mm. and and uh, living also abroad and studying abroad, but I think you uh, originally come from Beirut. Um, where where are you living and working and um, now it seems just you are in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, no, actually, originally I grew up in uh, Ramallah in the West Bank in Palestine. Okay. Um, but I uh, did my undergraduate in Lebanon and Beirut and then I studied for my uh, Ph.D. in New York and I went back to uh, Beirut where I've been working for the past nine years mm-hmm. teaching economics at the Lebanese American University.
0: So um, now it's summer, the perfect time for grilling. Uh, you said yeah. uh, on your Twitter account, I've seen that you like to grill a lot. What, what's the what's the thing with grilling?
1: <laughs> well, um, I mean, I've always enjoyed uh, grilling since I was a child, and I've uh, just kept on getting more interested in it and uh, more involved in it. But uh, the funny thing is that within the Bitcoin community, this is becoming a pretty common thing, and I think um, it's. Uh, It's not entirely a coincidence. It's not only a joke. I think uh, once you uh, break out of the conditioning when it comes to economics and uh, what your university tells you, you must believe about economics, it becomes straightforward to break out of the conditioning on other things, particularly nutrition. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: um, it's, uh, you know, just like uh, in economics, they tell us you need to listen to your government and use your government money because government money is the best. They also tell us to listen to their uh, uh, nutrition advice, which has been telling us to eat six to ten ratios of grain per day Mm -hmm. and that you should avoid animal fat and that you should avoid animal red meat and that red meat causes cancer and all of this stupid Mm -hmm. nonsense that uh, government scientists continue. I wouldn't call them scientists. Government Mm -hmm. uh, employees continue to repeat. And in fact, you know, it's almost as... uh, it is probably as liberating and as mind blowing as Bitcoin. Once you try doing the exact opposite of everything that your government nutritionists tell you—stop eating grains and sugars—and instead start eating meat, mm. and uh, specifically within Bitcoiners, you know, there's uh, there's a growing movement of Bitcoin carnivores who eat only meat and meat only, and. Um, I mean, I'm not a doctor and I'm not uh, telling you to do this and try it on my responsibility. You do your own choices. Mm. You make your own choices and you uh, bear your own responsibility. But uh, I'm not the only one who has enjoyed uh, greatly improved health when I started eating uh, meat Mm. exclusively. And the grilling is the best way to make meat. So uh, amongst Bitcoiners, uh, the popularity of grilling is increasing a lot.
0: Yeah funny that you say that because I'm 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 coming from exactly the opposite way. I'm trying to live vegan as good as I can. I mean I always uh, I mix it, you know. But um uh, you're right if you start uh, thinking about what is bitcoin and not believing in uh, marketing anymore and what people tell you or ha- have all the time told you uh and and take your own look at stuff I think that's a, a good general position uh, to be in anyhow. Um, yeah. So, and, and when did your interest in economics start and economics and sustainability? You studied it. So uh, when did that start?
1: Well, I was doing my undergraduate degree in uh, mechanical engineering, but I took an economics class and became pretty interested in economics and decided okay. that for my master's and my PhD, I would study something related to economics. So I studied a PhD in Sustainable Development and um, um, that got me interested in economic uh, central planning and uh, economic energy policy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that's, that was the focus of my uh, PhD. Now during the later stages of the uh, PhD program as I was beginning to finalize my PhD and try to write it, I just started reading, I, I started thinking more critically about things and that led me down the path of uh, discovering Austrian economists whose mm-hmm. perspective on, uh, on how to uh, plan economies and how economic activity happens and how feasible central planning is. They have very important and unique perspective on this. And so that really drastically opened how I wrote my PhD and how I thought about economics. And uh, after my PhD, I continued to uh, read more about Austrian economists and that's why, uh, you know, um, they started understanding their take on money and on the importance of hard money. And that, you know, uh, from that, I heard about Bitcoin. So I heard about Bitcoin mm-hmm. as somebody who's already uh, a believer in the importance of sound money and hard money. And then I heard about this interesting little project of a bunch of uh, computer geeks who have made this digital hard money. I don't even remember when I first heard about mm-hmm. uh, Bitcoin, but I, uh, you know, I, I, I was pretty skeptical of it for quite a while because I'm not a programmer. I'm not a cryptographer, And uh, it took me a very long time to be able to understand just uh, how reliable, um, how unkillable this thing is. And so from the period from 2000, I don't know if I heard about Bitcoin 2009 or 2010, but it was at most 2010. Mm-hmm. So the period from two thousand nine, ten to about thirteen, I was still largely skeptical that Bitcoin could work. Uh, but it was uh, really after two thousand thirteen, after it continued to refuse to die when all of the things that I thought would kill it were happening, and yet took me to survive. That's when I started really paying attention.
0: Okay. Can you maybe shortly explain what the Austrian School of Economy says and, and what's the, the connection there to Bitcoin for, for people who have no idea about the Austrian School of Economy?
1: Yes, absolutely. It is my pleasure. Um, it's uh, the Austrian school is if you think if you look back to the late nineteenth century, there were three main economic schools across Europe. It was the British school, the Austrian school and the Swedish school. Now, and they were, they, there wasn't very much, there were differences between them, but you know, these were the three main schools of thought at that time. Now, after uh, World War I and World War II, things changed, and effectively only the uh, British school uh, is the one that is taught in American and global universities all over the world. The Austrian school, you could say, it was founded by economist Karl Menger, and um, he wrote it. Principles of Economics textbook in 1870, and he was the one who uh, came up with the concept of uh, marginal analysis, which is a hugely important development in economics, not just in Austrian economics, but all economics today is marginal in its analysis. And I think that's probably a little too much to get into now, but your readers can read about it. It's pretty straightforward if they're interested in reading about marginal analysis and its importance. So, um, after that, uh, after Menger, his students, uh, Eugene Bomberg and uh, Ludwig von Mises, were uh, continued to work and produce more research on this. Um, the difference between the Austrian school and what came to be popular across uh, most of the world today, which is effectively British and Canadian uh, economics, is that, is that the fundamental difference is that Austrian economics starts from the starting point that all value is subjective. Value is subjective, and therefore, mm. value is not something that is objective that can be decreed, and it's not something that can just be measured easily. And it's not something that is like a physical property of a good that you can just determine it objectively, you know? In the same way that you can say this uh, pile of cotton weighs 700 kilograms you can't say that this pile of cotton is worth $700. Value is always subjective. It depends on the person making the valuation. So um, from this really flows the notion of methodological individualism, the idea that you can't really analyze economics outside of analyzing individual choices and individual actions because it's the mind of the individuals that decides uh, on the value and to the mind of the individual that uh, that is going to make the trade-offs with any particular uh, economic decision, and it turns out that this was a much better way of doing economic analysis than uh, um, than others. Now, how it is relevant to economics is that once you you know once you start from the assumption, once you start from the well, I wouldn't call it an assumption, but from the sound starting point that it's about subjective individual valuation. Then you understand that there's no right and wrong in economics. There's only decisions people want to make and people make the the decisions that are best for them. And therefore, we see that in economic systems in which people are able to freely decide what they want to do, people prosper, people do better. And um, the markets adjust in order to coordinate people's activities with one another in a good way. And. So you see, and, you know, the Austrian school is associated with libertarianism or with classical liberalism, because it arises from understanding economics, it arises at the importance of free exchange, at the importance of individuals being able to decide between themselves freely what it is that they want to do and how they want to carry it out. And so based on that, um, Austrian economists have always opposed all forms of central planning and government control on the economy. Um, and, you know, Ludwig von Mises spent a lot of time fighting that in Austria between the two world wars. And he had a he had a pretty important impact in preventing Austria from becoming a socialist country at that period. Um, but uh, not for very long, uh, as you surely you know. But uh, then, um, now with applying it to money, the importance of this is that the Austrians believe that money is something that should emerge on the free market. Sound money is money whose choice of, uh, whose value is determined through people buying and selling things through one, for one another freely. Whereas uh, unsound money or um, uh, bad money is money whose value is determined through government coercion. So like with everything else, Austrians go back to the issue of individual freedom, and with money, it's no exception. And this is really what sets the Austrians apart. So all the stuff that I mentioned earlier about subjectivism might not be, might not sound all that important for you and your readers, but really what really matters is the issue of money. Austrians believe a free market is capable of providing a modern economy with money simply by people choosing the money that they want, and its value emerges on its own. Um, Keynesian economists. Statist economists, government economists, central bank economists all think that without the government there to provide us with money, you know, mm. bad things would happen or we wouldn't be able to have money. Mm. So this is how it's relevant to Bitcoin, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Do you do you know any, do you have any example for a country or an economy that works like that?
1: Um, well, I mean, it's, uh, it's not really straightforward to say a country that works like that or doesn't work like that. It's... Uh, Every country works like that in the sense of the rules of economics and the laws of economics still apply to you, whether you choose it or not. So, you know, countries where they try to centrally plan the economies and then they end up with mass uh, unemployment and maybe even starvation are uh, an excellent example of uh, a validation of what the Austrian economists say. Um, But, you know, if you want to see an example of a free market economy, I think the best examples Uh, In the 20th century, you'd see, I think, Switzerland is probably the best example. Switzerland continued to be on the gold standard until, you could say, the 30s. You could even say the 70s. And even until the 90s, they had a very strong cover of gold behind their currency. Switzerland has very little role for government in its economy. The people just do what they want. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of economic freedom. And as I'm sure you know, Switzerland is uh, not exactly... Doing too badly from uh, this kind yeah. of economic freedom. Yeah,
0: that's true. Yeah,
1: so it's it's, and I think the mm. monetary freedom aspect of it is uh, highly underestimated. Switzerland, in, and I show this in my book. Up until the 1970s, Switzerland um, had practically no unemployment. You look at the unemployment rate in Switzerland under the gold standard; it was almost always zero, between zero and point two, point three percent, something like that. Only after they moved away from the gold standard in the 1970s and started following keynesian monetary policy of expansionary monetary policy you start seeing the regular increase in unemployment only then did unemployment go up over one percent and since the 1990s when they sold the majority of their gold stock, unemployment has gone up to three four and five percent and now switzerland's economy is similar to any other industrial economy where people think that Unemployment and business cycles and recessions and inflation are just a normal god given thing, you know just like we have storms mm-hmm. and uh, lightning and rain and uh, clouds and uh, the weather changing. We also have inflation and unemployment, and that's not true that is absolutely not true and I' is the best example of that
0: so in your book, you often refer to Bitcoin as digital gold when I understand mm-hmm. that right. Um, And uh, I think many people have the misconception of the the, the worth of gold that it's uh, um, uh, made, that the worth is because people like to wear it uh, as jewelry. But um, can you explain what really makes the worth of gold and where is uh, the connection to Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are many other things that also get worn as jewelry, but they are not money. Silver, uh, diamonds. Uh, precious stones—they are all uh, used as jewelry, and they all look pretty. But they're not exactly money. And the reason for that is that, um, uh, in my opinion, uh, the what matters about gold is its monetary character characteristics. And this is a problem that many uh, uh, um, gold bugs or people who like gold—you uh, know—they get too fixated on the physical properties of it, which are really interesting from a chemical and uh, uh, aesthetic perspective, but. They are not what make it money. What makes it money is the fact that it's, econo- or it's economic properties. In particular, is the fact that what I call the stock to flow ratio for gold is um, extremely high. It's, it's the highest ratio amongst any other uh, commodity or metal that we have ever invented. And that specifically refers to the hardness of money. In other words, if, uh, and I describe this in detail in my book. Anything that people are free to choose anything they want as money. But the problem is that if they choose something that is easy to produce, then others will produce more and more of it, which will increase the supply, which will bring the price down. Therefore, your choice of money ends up costing you because you stored your wealth in something. The value of that thing went up. But then when others produce more of it, they are able to decrease the value of the things that you have simply by producing things outside so therefore anybody who ends up using something that is easy to produce as money will just witness their wealth disappear on the other hand people who produce things that are hard to who use things that are hard to produce as money will instead find them easier uh, to keep their wealth will find it easier to keep their wealth in it if it's hard to make things then it becomes uh, easy for you to store your wealth in it and so Gold was the hardest metal that we had ever invented in terms of its, uh, its production. It's very rare in mm-hmm. earth. It's very hard to find. It's very expensive to mine. And no matter how much we find, even if we spend a lot more resources on digging for gold, it's very hard to increase the supply in any meaningful way because the, the fact is that gold does not grow So we've been accumulating gold for thousands of years and any new amount of gold that we add to it through production today is not really going to make a huge difference on the, the global stockpile of gold that exists, right? Because we've been piling up gold production for thousands of years and nothing has uh, been lost from that gold. Whereas uh, with all other metals, the current stockpile is just the production of the last few years. All the old production has corroded or rusted or uh, been used, uh, been destroyed in one way or the other. So as a result of this, gold ends up with what I call the highest stock-to-flow ratio. In other words, mm-hmm. the stockpile that exists today is highest compared to the flow or the new supply that is being produced this year. So the, or another way of looking at it is that it's the inverse of the annual supply growth rate. So the annual supply growth rate for gold is almost always around 1.5%, or as far back as anybody can remember, it's between 1% and 2%. Every year, we're adding 1% and 2% to the global stockpile of gold. And that is why gold is money. That's why, because it's hard for people to be able to make more gold in response to increased demand. And so gold is the bubble that cannot pop because you cannot increase its supply much more. And that's the economic property of gold that that Bitcoin copies. Bitcoin has none of the physical properties of gold, but it does have this monetary property. The supply starts off growing at a very quick rate for for the first five, six years. Then it begins to decline. Now, currently, we're growing at around 4% per year. But in a couple of years, yeah. we're going to drop our growth rate below that of gold. So that each year, the Bitcoin supply will increase at around uh, less than 1%. And then it's going to tend towards zero. So that's, I think, why Bitcoin is very interesting for me as a monetary uh, instrument.
0: And also because of the fixed supply.
1: Yes. Yeah. And that's the other aspect of it, which is that Bitcoin... Not only does the supply decline, but also it, uh, it I'm sorry, not only does the supply growth rate decline, but also it, uh, st- it declines all the way to zero. And so the supply is constant. And so um, we get to a point where the uh, the, the, the quantity of Bitcoin is going to be fixed to 21 million. Mm-hmm. And that is the first time that we have a liquid asset that is divisible, that is combinable, that you can send and receive easily. Mm -hmm. but also is strictly limited in its quantity. And I think this makes it an excellent store of value because it's impossible for people to make more of it Mm -hmm. um, to devalue the value that you store into it. That's Mm -hmm. really an astonishing new um, aspect about Bitcoin, which I think is possibly the most important uh, economic characteristic of Bitcoin. It's, It's truly unique.
0: Yeah, I think in general, the concept is a genius concept because uh, it's a combination of so many things. It's not only economic, it's also technology and mathematics and cryptography and also game theory, uh, which is also used uh, to, to reward the miners for mining the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, and I think that's great because they are incentivized to, to be positive and fair towards the Bitcoin blockchain um what else is so important uh, to use the proof of work concept for mining what do you mean
1: uh well I think the, the uh, proof of work concept i I'm, anybody who thinks that uh, proof of work is wasteful or who thinks yeah that, you know, exactly Bitcoin that that's
0: the thing I wanted to to follow up then <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah anybody who thinks you know we could just fix Bitcoin if we just found a way to make proof of work cheaper or more economically uh Uh, more economical or less uh, energy intensive, I think that misses the entire point. If there was a cheap way to make Bitcoin and to make the proof of work, then the Bitcoin security would fall apart. Similarly, if there was a cheap way to find gold, if let's say we get hit by an asteroid that is full of gold and that contains, uh, say, 20 times the amount of gold that exists on Earth, and that's actually quite possible because apparently the entire quantity of gold that has been mined in all of human history would fit into two Olympic swimming pools or something like that. You could fit oh. it all as gold bars into two Olympic swimming pools. That's it. So if you imagine, you know that's uh, you could have a meteor that's one hundred times the size of that. So if the earth gets hit by a meteor that just sits there in the middle of a desert somewhere, available for anybody to go and chip out gold uh, from it, gold's monetary role would be destroyed. If gold becomes cheap to produce and the supply capacity to increase very easily, or if we keep getting hit by these meteors once every year gold would not be money mm. and so you know the the only reason that this system works is that expensive resources have to go into um verifying into writing the blocks and so in order to ensure that the miners are honest we have to make sure that they spend money first in order to be able to write the uh, transactions onto the blockchain And then once we are sure that they've spent that money on solving the proof of work and that they have the correct transactions, then they get rewarded. It's this asymmetry that ensures that they're honest, because if they try to lie, then they have just wasted all of those resources for nothing. And then uh, it's it's, it's a very losing proposition. I mean, currently it costs maybe around $80,000 or so to write a block onto the Bitcoin blockchain. So every 10 minutes or Mm -hmm. so. Miners are spending roughly in the range of $80,000 in order to get the reward, which is around $80,000. It might be more, it might be less. It varies with the price and the difficulty, but it vary. they vary around each other. So we know that miners need to spend something like $80,000 in order to commit a block to the blockchain, and then they receive the block reward. If you made it so that they don't have to spend the $80,000 in order to get the reward, then it becomes very easy for them to lie. And so this the, the, the having to make the cost real is what ensures the system operates without having trust in anybody. Mm-hmm.
0: But this doesn't set the price of Bitcoin. I think that's also a misunderstanding often that people think that the cost of the, 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 the power uh, and the electricity and the uh, computers, that uh, this uh, money uh, defines the price of Bitcoin. But that's not true.
1: That is absolutely not true. And the only reason people think like that is because they have not studied Austrian economics enough. Go and read your Austrian economist. (laughs) You will see that the cost of production follows the value that people give to things. The reason that diamonds are expensive or the reason that um, Bitcoin is expensive is that people value it. Mm. Because people are willing to pay $8,000 or $6,000 for a Bitcoin, that's why miners are willing to spend up to $6,000 Making a Bitcoin come out every day, so it's, that's what makes the cost of production expensive. It's because people value it. It's not that we spend a lot of resources on it, and therefore that means it's valuable. Because mm-hmm. you know, you could spend ten million dollars. Um, the favorite example that the Austrian economists give is a mud pie. You know, if you go and you spend your entire day baking a pie made out of mud, just because you spent an entire day behind it doesn't mean that people will pay you the wages that you think you deserve for them. If people value the mud pie, they will pay for it. And then based on how much they value it and how much they're willing to pay for it, you will dedicate resources in order to produce it for them. Mm. And you will be able to dedicate more or less resources for them. So therefore, the value is subjective. As I was saying earlier, value is always subjective. And the cost of production follows the value. So the reason people are spending a lot of money on making Bitcoin, is that, people, uh, is that people value it that much.
0: Before we continue our show, a short message from our sponsors. Thanks for listening and we will be back soon.
1: You're looking for a solution to store Bitcoin the safe and easy way? The Card Wallet is a high-secure way to storing Bitcoin offline, developed by Coinfinity and the Austrian state printing house. The Card Wallet is a professional cold storage solution made with high-quality security materials and tamper-proof features that prevent the manipulation of the card. If you want to know more or buy the Card Wallet, go to www.cardwallet.com.
0: So, we always have the criticism in papers and people tell me also, you know, uh, one transaction uh, is so uh, environmental, um, so bad for the uh, environment, like driving 900K with a diesel car. Um, you are an academic in the field of sustainability, but nonetheless, you are a Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin fan, a Bitcoiner. Um, and I think compared to... Other forms of money, or producing money, or uh, producing gold and storing gold, uh, producing Bitcoin is not so ex- uh, wasteful or, or, or um, need so much electricity. What do you think of this?
1: Well, I think you know. Again, good economists don't just look at the uh, what is in front of them; they look at what is also unseen. They try to understand the whole uh, picture of uh, what. Uh, What are the costs and the trade-offs involved? So, and I don't agree with Bitcoiners who respond to this by saying, you know, look at all the banks in the world and look at how much electricity they consume and we could replace them all with Bitcoin. Because I don't believe that Bitcoin is going to completely replace the job of banking. Mm -hmm. I think the job of banking is just a valid business line that has existed throughout human history, regardless of the monetary medium that has been used. And I think it will continue to exist because people will always want to store their money with others because they don't want to have all of their wealth hiding Mm -hmm. under their mattress so that if one guy comes into their home, they're able to steal everything they've worked for throughout their entire life. The idea of putting secure storage with others is going to always appeal to a lot of people. It may not appeal to many uh, Bitcoiners who are happy to do it, but I think it's going to always appeal to a majority of people. And secondly, you know, the notion of uh, the, the the job of banks in uh, matching uh, borrowers and lenders and in taking investments from uh, savers and giving them to investors and entrepreneurs. This, I think, is a, is a, is, a uh, is an enormously important uh, job in a modern capitalist economy, and it will survive. So, what we want to think think about when we are saying when we're discussing Bitcoin's energy consumption is what is the alternative really what are the alternatives what is bitcoin really saving us from with this energy consumption in my opinion as i said it's not the buildings of the federal reserve and the central banks what bitcoin allows us to do by utilizing electricity for energy consumption is to make monetary policy free of human control free of political control completely independent from politicians and i think you know once you understand what the cost of having Central banks controlled by governments has been, then there is absolutely no chance that you think any amount of electricity is too much for Bitcoin.
0: Mm.
1: you know the reason that ha- having central banks control the money supply is why we've had wars in the 20th century lasts for so much longer than uh, previous centuries, as I mentioned in my book. Yeah. Having, uh, ha- having central banks control it is why today we have Venezuelan hyperinflation, it's why we have mm. Zimbabwe hyperinflation it's why we have. The U.S. government able to launch wars all over the world without having to worry about it. You know, think about my favorite example is to think about the Iraq war in 2003 when I think it was Paul Wolfowitz or one of these neocons who went in front of the Senate and said the whole war should cost maybe $1 billion to $2 billion and it will pay for itself over time. <laughs> now, 15 years later, we know that the war has cost somewhere between $1 and $2 trillion, so 1,000 times the amount of money that that liar Said cost. But that is only possible in a system in which money is easy because, in that sort of system, you know, the money, the war starts, and then the government just essentially prints the money that is necessary to finance it. Of course, it's not printing, it's more complicated than that. But, you know, the central bank provides the government with the liquidity that it needs. Citizens are only going to get the bill many years later in terms of inflation and in terms of the recessions and the business cycle that they go through. So imagine if the American government, if, if the neocons had gone to the American people and told them, we want to bring democracy to Iraq and it's going to cost us one to two trillion dollars, and we need you to pay up front so that we can arm our soldiers. What would have happened then? Mm-hmm. Almost certainly, I mean, not almost certainly, certainly, there's no chance that Americans would have paid that amount of money out of pocket this is what hard money allows us to do it allows us to always have accurate accounting of the costs and benefits because nobody can cheat the system by printing money nobody can just cheat the system print money and then finance their operations every government every individual they have a very clear idea about the cost and the revenues of their actions and that honesty is very very valuable and if we had that we'd be rid of uh, hyperinflations and all the terrible damage that they're doing, which you can see in Venezuela today, we'd be rid of a lot of the wars. I'm not saying we would not have wars, but wars will be very, very different. If you read about wars in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, kings were very much more careful about not launching wars that were unnecessary. They were much more careful about not getting into uh, expensive conflicts. Wars were resolved quite quickly because if you started running out of resources, then you got into deep trouble and you could lose your crown.
0: Mm-hmm. But but how how do you see, see the way to this point, you know? Because uh, I've lost a lot of uh, trust in society and my people here in Austria, for instance, because they voted for a very right-wing uh, uh, government. Um, but still, there's no uprising, you know? People are still doing their jobs, doing their things. There's a little bit of protest, but nothing really. So... How do we get there to this point that people realize, um, how freeing and how, uh, uh, potentially, let's say, uh, good Bitcoin system like Bitcoin could be for us as a whole.
1: Well, I, the good thing about Bitcoin is that, um, uh, I mean, I generally am not a fan of politics in all shape and form. I think Bitcoin, I think politics is just a very, very stupid way to, um, waste your energy and um it's completely counterproductive nobody gets what they want and really uh you know you're an individual in this life and you will only ever succeed in doing things that concern you as an individual not if you're trying to um, control others and have others control you so i think voting in general and democracy are just completely counterproductive and very destructive ideas i don't think that you're ever going to get good change out of this and you know this might sound crazy, but if any of your readers is interested in learning more about it, I highly recommend a book by a German economist called Hans Hermann Hoppe, and the book's title is Democracy: The God mm-hmm. That Failed. Mm-hmm. And we all grow up thinking of democracy as the nicest thing imaginable. you know, democracy is like Applehood, uh, apple pie, and motherhood. It really isn't. It, if you think about it critically, if you think about uh, if you think about, what are the costs and the benefits of democracy? It's not been fun. It has not been a good thing for humanity over the last 100 or so years. And the good thing about Bitcoin is that it does not rely on that. It does not rely on any voting. And Bitcoin is economic reality. The way that I see it, if Bitcoin continues to operate successfully, which, you know, it might not, but if it does, if it continues to operate successfully, it will continue to maintain its scarcity and it will continue to clear payments around the world and i think it, it's going to impose itself so that people will use it not because they agree with its political philosophy but because they are economically self-interested people will want to have a store of value that can hold allow them to hold to wealth into the future and over time more and more and more going to realize that bitcoin is the best for doing that because of its scarcity and its neutrality and so it's, I, I believe that you know, economic reality does not mean you and me to impose itself. So similarly, we don't need to be organizing political parties and running elections for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is big enough to take care of itself. And um, to go back to your original question, you know, the, the key thing that I try to emphasize in my book, if you, if you read the subtitle of my book, it says, that The Bitcoin Standard, the subtitle is The, uh, the Centralized Alternative to Central Banking. Bitcoin is not here to replace banks as I was saying Bitcoin is here to replace central banks and central banks settlement mechanisms amongst themselves and Central banks ability to set monetary policy
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So if you really think about it that way each Bitcoin transaction cannot be compared to your MasterCard transaction your MasterCard transaction is just a centralized ledger entry with MasterCard and you know you pay me ten dollars so MasterCard will take ten dollars from my account to yours Go through my bank and yours, and they all do all of those things. But for every 1 million or 10 million transactions that you carry, that your bank carries out for its customers, at the end of the day or week or month, it will make a settlement payment with another bank that is a final settlement payment, that is money that is going to move irrevocably back or some settlement payments between central banks. This is like the equivalent of moving gold in the gold standard. This mm-hmm. is what Bitcoin transactions can be compared to. So currently, it costs, yes, no matter how much energy you, and I've seen many estimates and I don't think they're, uh, it's very easy to estimate how much energy they consume, but currently, you know, assuming it costs, say, uh, $100 of electricity to send one Bitcoin transaction, it's an extremely uh, uh, exaggerated value. But even if you assume that, well, one Bitcoin transaction can send the equivalent of a billion dollars in Bitcoin from uh, the U.S. to Austria or from the U.S. to China, and it will complete the transaction in under one hour. What other options do you have for sending $1 billion of value under one hour for $100 worth of electricity? And you see,
0: mm-hmm. once
1: you think of it that way, you understand the difference between a consumer payment and a settlement payment. Once you understand that, you realize that actually, even at $1,000 of electricity per transaction, Bitcoin is a massive, massive uh, saving It's a huge technological uh, breakthrough because it allows us to move value trustlessly across the world. And there are no other alternatives that do that. If you want to move a billion dollars in terms of gold, you know, the cost of that is going to be enormous, as not, not, co- not even comparable to uh, Bitcoin.
0: But why are you so sure that this will be Bitcoin and not, for instance, Ripple?
1: <laughs> and- I mean that's uh, what
0: what you know what you read in the papers and uh, yeah.
1: Well, Ripple. I mean that's a very bad example. I mean it's it's probably the worst of all of the. Um, it's 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 my least favorite of all the shitcoin. <laughs> uh, I hope you don't mind me saying shitcoin here. Um, but uh, I mean Ripple. Look, Ripple is just a centralized data ledger entry mm. at the offices of some startup. So effectively, we are going to have the entire global monetary system settling through ripple then we have just decided to put this startup made up of a bunch of shady characters who had been part of other shady startups before you know the, the, one of the founders was part of mount gox and we also how that worked out mm-hmm. so we're just going to this group of people and we're telling them hey you get to be the kings of all of world finance and so when the chinese central bank wants to send billion to the US central bank to settle their trade or whatever, you know, they're going to do it through you and going to be done with Ripple. Ripple are just data entries on their centralized server and all of their pretenses about being centralized is obviously completely nonsensical. Mm. So it's not going to be any of the other coins because they are all centralized. And this is, you know, they all copy Bitcoin's design or they copy Bitcoin's ritual or they copy Bitcoin's marketing. In order to go around and say, we're also decentralized. And that's really silly. It's because Bitcoin's decentralization is not through its design, which thousands of people have copied. It's through the fact that its design has grown out there in the market, on the internet, without anybody controlling it. And it continues to be operational. And continues to succeed without there being anyone in charge. And I think after 2017 and after all of the uh, drama that we saw with the miners and with the startups trying to fork Bitcoin and failing miserably at it, I think we can conclude quite reasonably that it's nobody really controls Bitcoin, and it's a very tough claim to make. And it takes you years of, of observing Bitcoin to be able to believe it. So none of the coins, the other coins, can even come close to making this. You know, you name whatever, whichever coin you want, and I can pick any, and I can. Um, I can find you the people who control it. You know, there are mm-hmm. thousands of these coins out there. If you have heard of any particular one of them, the only reason that you heard about it, unlike Bitcoin, which was truly a unique breakthrough when you heard about it because it was a new breakthrough, all the others, they didn't offer any unique breakthroughs. All the others are just worthless copycats. And so if you've heard about one versus any of the others, the only reason you heard about it is that it was, it has a team of people behind it marketing it. And promoting it, and they're not marketing it and promoting it for fun, mm. uh, on for charity, or because they want to build a neutral global system. They're marketing and promoting it to make money from it. They're spending money on it so that they would get money back from it. Mm. And that's what all shitcoins have done. This is the only thing that shitcoins does do, and that is enrich the people who um, produce them. So you know, none of them is able to perform one single commercially viable thing that Bitcoin does not perform after all these years there is no single altcoin that has done anything that bitcoin cannot do the only thing that they do is exactly what bitcoin does you know private key public key and then a shared ledger of transactions and then you get to spend money around that's it that's the only thing that they all do but the other thing that they have is that they have a marketing team behind them pushing them and trying to get people to buy them and sell them so that they would get rich it's worked but you know this is why for me is that they are outcoins are so completely uninteresting. They're just, you know, it works like the Madoff Ponzi scheme works. And I don't care about the Madoff Ponzi scheme. I'm not stupid enough to fall for it and I'm not, you know, and, I, and I'm not the sort of person who would like to go and tell stupid, greedy people that uh, no, you're being stupid and greedy. Stop being stupid and greedy. You're going to lose it. I've tried doing that and I realized that the only thing that happens from that is that you just uh, upset people and aggravate them and that the only way that people will learn is from their own mistakes so you know all of these altcoins are just silly scams, in my opinion none of them will have ever will ever have what makes Bitcoin important which is the fact that it is completely decentralized and controlled by nobody
0: yeah actually that's the same as like uh, Andreas Antonopoulos said in uh, regarding uh, Ponzi schemes uh, he said whenever he tried to uh, tell people that this is uh Uh, not okay Um, he gets uh, the worst um, let's say um, how how do you say it Um, they write him the worst things and uh, say it's not true and yeah as long as you know as long you believe it and the first people in the row get their money out of it and they tell the others then no it's working it's working then uh, actually you can't stop that. That's, uh, yes, sad, and people would
1: much rather hear the notion that they can get rich easily than somebody who tells them, no, you have yeah. to actually work hard in order to get rich. So it's a thankless task being the person who goes around, them, which is why I, I, you know, the more I think about it, the more I avoid any discussion of altcoins. I mean, on my Twitter, I've now muted the names of all of the altcoin, all of the you know, most uh, popular altcoins. I'm just absolutely not interested in anything that happens to them. I have absolutely no interest in knowing about it. I have no interest in getting Mm. into discussions with people behind them. Um, And I realize, you know, they want to get into those discussions because the only way that they can have any relevance is to pretend that they are rivals to Bitcoin. And when we as Bitcoiners start talking back to them, to the outsider who doesn't know the difference, it looks like, you know, this is just like you say uh, Pepsi and Coca-Cola fans fighting with each other. Uh, no, Pepsi is better. No, cola is better. It isn't like that. Bitcoin is not competing with those things. Bitcoin is completely different from those things. Mm-hmm. Those things compete with uh, Bernie Madoff and other Ponzi schemes on getting people to invest in them. Bitcoin is competing with the dollar and the euro and the IMF standard drawing rights and uh, gold and all these international currencies for the settlement of uh, international payments. This is really, I think, why it, it's a complete waste of time to uh, even get into discussions of outcomes. People will learn on their own. Mm.
0: So uh, coming to our last questions now, <clears throat> um, you mentioned uh, uh, Austrian economics before. Which book <laughs> would you recommend for new people to, to, to read, the first reader on Austrian economics? Hmm.
1: Well, that's an interesting uh, question. Um, I would say if you wanted a comprehensive textbook where you could just read it and learn all of economics from A to Z, the best is still a book called Man, Economy, and State. And it is by Murray Rothbard, who's not Austrian himself, but he was a student of the Austrian uh, economist. He was a student of Mises. This book was relatively recent, and it's... it's, uh, it's, it's written in plain English, so you can just read it and understand it. It's not complicated math, but, uh, because you know the, this is what economics should be. So this is, would be the comprehensive book, but it is pretty long. Um, if you want something that is more of a simple treatment of the same topics, there's an old book called Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, which I highly recommend. Um, and it's just... Small chapters, each one only a few pages long, and it explains some of the main concepts with, uh, you know, with very simple language and very easy to understand, very intuitive, uh, very intuitive discussion. I really liked that book, and it was uh, it, it was one of the first that I read, and it uh, blew my mind. Uh, well, first that I read in terms of the Austrian economists, um, but other than that, in terms of say one book that I find really important. I have to pick an an actual Austrian, since you're Austrian and we're talking about the Austrian school, so, and Hazlitt and Rothbard are not. So for an actual Austrian, a brief but very old book by Friedrich Hayek called Monetary Nationalism and International Stability. Mm-hmm. And this was a book published in the 1930s in which Hayek discusses the birth of what he calls monetary nationalism, the idea that each government now, has its own flag and, you know, all all of the trappings of nationhood. And you add to that the notion that part of what makes you a nation is that you have your own currency. It sounds almost, for us, you know, the victims of the 20th century, the people who were unfortunately born under this status system, it sounds like it's normal. You know, every country, you have your flag, you have your football team, you have your song, Mm -hmm. and you have your currency with your king or your uh, president's picture on it. And that's not uh, how the world has always existed. And if you look at the turn of the 20th century, this did not exist. The whole world was on the same money, which was gold. All over the world, gold was money. And different currencies were just different weights of gold. And exchanging one currency to the other was as straightforward as exchanging um, meters to inches or kilograms to pounds. It was just a unit conversion. There was no... uh, Fluctuation in the exchange rates. Once we move to this current system of monetary nationalism, Hayek shows you how disastrous this has been, how problematic it is, and you know, he was talking in the 1930s, and you can see the problems unfolding over the next 80 years from that. And uh, yeah, I think Bitcoin is is, is an excellent uh, is an excellent book is an excellent technology to fix that. Bitcoin really, as Hayek once said. You know, he, he said something and I quote that in my book. He says, government taking over money, the only way around is that by some sly or roundabout way, we have to invent something which they cannot stop. And I think that's exactly what Bitcoin is. It's something that's going to take money out of the hands of the government by a sly and roundabout way. People will use Bitcoin because of the economic incentives to use it and the governments won't be able to stop people from using it and hopefully it will be able to separate government from money for good for the 21st century.
0: Yeah, Thank you very much. I mean, I highly recommend the Bitcoin standard, of course. Um, is there also a German uh, version of it or will there be one?
1: You know, so far we haven't... uh, The the book is published by Wiley, so if any of your readers are interested in uh, getting it published, they would have to get a publisher in Germany or in a German country that would buy the German rights from Wiley. So far we've got translation rights for uh, Spanish, Vietnamese, Chinese, and Russian. Those are the four languages that have bought the rights for uh, the book, but not for uh, German. I would... uh, I'd, I'd absolutely love it if somebody would uh, translate it, and uh, um, so yeah, hopefully one of your readers can um, would have a publishing house or know somebody has a publishing house. Tell them I would love it if it was made into a German edition, and then that would give me another reason to go and visit the beautiful Vienna again.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was great you visiting here. Yeah, Thank okay, you. thanks. Yeah, so my last question, um, you no, you're promoting your book now over the summer, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you going to do next and how can my listeners uh, follow you and support your work?
1: Um, well, for the, uh, the rest of the summer, I'm going to uh, have a few more uh, talks in uh, Calgary and in Montreal and in Dallas. Um, possible few other cities are being lined up. So you can see all of my... Um, uh, book tour events and then I think in, in the fall. I'm going to be back in Europe. I'll, I'll make a few visits I'll be in Madrid in October and I have a few bunch of other uh, dates tentatively arranged Um, so you can see on my uh, My tour date on my blog, which uh, is the safe house dot WordPress the safe saif and then house dot WordPress and mm-hmm. um, and uh, mainly the best place to communicate with me is on my Twitter, which I spend a lot of time on. Or you can also join my mailing list. Um, all of these, you can find them on my website, which is safedeen.com. So just my first name, safe at dean, uh, dot com. Yeah.
0: Thank you for taking the time. All the best to you. And I hope uh, we will meet again, maybe in next year or somewhere somewhere (laughs) or in austria and uh yeah thanks for being here and have a good day
1: thank you so much for having me anita this was a very fun conversation and i like that we spoke a lot about the australian economy look forward to sharing this with my followers
0: that's great thank you
1: all right have a good day
0: you too bye this was today's episode thanks for listening if you liked it, please share it with your friends and family on Twitter or Facebook and leave a review on iTunes or YouTube. And please consider to support the show. You can do several things. You can become a patron on patreon.com forward slash Anita posh That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash A-N-I-T-A-P-O-S C-H. For an amount of $5 per month, you'll get early access to new episodes and a big thank you. If you prefer to tip me in Bitcoin, you can find my address on the website. If you want to advertise your product or company, please send an email to hello at bitcoincopodcast.com. That's hello at bitcoincopodcast.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.
1: Audio editing and signation spoken by Katrin Eidenhammer. Idea and production by Anita Posch.